Welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kathy. We have a great interview for you today, but before we get started, we have some exciting news. Here we go. (laughs) If you will go to iTunes and find our podcast there and leave us a rating and a review, then you will automatically be entered to win a free year of ESGI. A five-star rating, please. (laughs) (laughs) now tell them why a a full year of esgi is so cool mom oh esgi will save you 400 hours of time this school year and you will love it because it is a great way to track your data and to follow the progress of your students in a very authentic way and addition additionally (laughs) In addition to the ESGI, I will also be throwing in the paper um, assessments that I have for sale that I have digitally available for you on ESGI, already set up and ready to go. And I will give you those. Which is an exciting, exciting thing. (laughs) And I will give you those paper versions to guide you on fabulous ESGI. Hey, honestly, I just stumbled onto ESGI, and it has just made my life so much easier. And especially when it comes report card time, I used to spend a whole weekend, and now I spend 10 minutes and always go to a movie (laughs) that weekend. So go leave your rating and (laughs) review. We really appreciate it because it tells iTunes that you like us, and and that helps other teachers find us. And our goal is really just to get our message out there that we want kindergarten to be developmentally appropriate places where children can learn. So there was a study by Greg Duncan of University of California, Irvine, that showed that early math skills are one of the best predictors of later success in both math and literacy. So if that's the case, and number sense is that is more important than teaching alphabet letters, we better hear this podcast about math. Today's interview is with Tamara Shaw. Tamara is currently a special education teacher with the Weber School District. She spent five years in between teaching assignments as a math coach. She has also spent the past eight years developing curriculum and teaching teachers about Common Core Math, best practices in math instruction, and math pedagogy with the State Office of Education. She has undergone a graduate degree in psychology, graduate degree in middle school mathematics, an elementary math endorsement, as well as a special education mild moderate endorsement. Tamara joined me over FaceTime, and the first thing we talked about was mathematical rigor. When the authors were writing the core, the common cores, um, as known in most states, they looked really at three main shifts that we needed to take as educators, and shifts in what we were going to teach and how we were going to teach as well. There was focus, coherence, and rigor, and rigor seems to be the one that trips up a lot of teachers. Um, You know, they wanted to streamline the core, make it more focused make it more coherent so it went from grade level to grade level so that it was consistent from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, you know, so that students would be ready for college. And then came in this third piece of it, this rigor. And, um, yeah, a lot of misconceptions are about what rigor is and what it's not. So like we talked about in the class, rigor is not giving more homework. It's not making things harder or above grade level core, um, challenging, you know, some of our um, academically successful students, you know, those, those ones we term high students, challenging them to do in kindergarten, first grade work or first grade, second grade work. I mean, it's, it's not those things. And the other myth, myth or misconception is that it's not available to all students. And it really is. We just have to be very aware of our students. So it's not being harder or giving more complex or, or being, you know, trickier, trying to trick our students. It really is, if we think about a three-legged stool, and each piece is, is vitally as important as, as each other, it's the understanding of having and developing conceptual understanding, procedural fluency, and then applying or that application piece. So if teachers are able to think about that, and with each piece being equally as important, as I said, um, we look at that conceptual understanding. Do our students really understand those key concepts such as place value and then as they get older into ratios and things like that? Um, so they might be able to do a number of things, but do they really, you know, from a different perspectives, so they're able to see math as more than just those discrete procedures. This is how we add 
and we just add and this is how we multiply and this is how we subtract and this is how we divide and then on through to all the other things they'll they'll continue to do it's not just that it's really conceptually understanding what math is how it works and then that procedural skill and fluency is the other part of it um, so that their speed they are accurate and they're quick in their calculations so that they're given opportunities to practice that um, so they can do that with their single digits and then move to double digits. Um, beginning, of course, with the um, addition and subtraction, moving on to multiplication division. And then application. Students are able to use that math flexibly in problem-solving context. So that, can they take it out of isolation just in what we give them in kindergarten and first grade and then also you know, on throughout? Can they take it out of just that, that one little lesson? Can we realize how... We then um, take that math and we apply it to just about everything we do, that, those problem-solving skills, um, so that they realize that math isn't just in isolation, that it, you know, it's real, it has real-world application, and it's something that we use all the time. Um, so that, that is how that um, rigor is defined as those three things, that conceptual understanding, building that, building procedural skill and fluency, and then building that application. But also understanding that we're not going to teach that in every lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Nor is there an expectation that every lesson will hit on all three, um, that it will be taught every single day. But also that, um, it, you know, that one piece can be missed and it's okay. That, you know, that's not acceptable either. Like throughout the course of our instruction, we have to make sure that all three pieces of those, of that stool are, are um, hit upon and that, that students are learning that. Um, so they, they work together and then they're also, um, and one doesn't preclude the other. So you kind of use them as stepping stones for each other. You can use procedural fluency to, um, you know, to teach that application. You can use application to be um, on the underside of, of the procedural skill and fluency, you know, so they all, they work in, you know, independent, but also intertwined. And then you can use each of them to practice, to introduce, to teach, to, you know, for every component of a, of a well-rounded math class mm -hmm. or lesson. I like that it's about looking at each individual child and meeting them rigorously wherever they're at. Mm -hmm. And then that's the key. It's wherever they're at. It's, it's, it's knowing our students, knowing their... Um, you know, knowing each one of them as individuals and knowing where they are on that scale. What, you know, and, and also knowing our math programs as we get into kind of the next question as we look at that, really knowing our, our math basals that we're using and, um, you know, what pieces of that puzzle are they missing? You know, is, is, our, is our basal really, you know, conceptually, you know, built upon conceptual understanding? Is it really built upon procedural you know, fluency, is it really built upon application? And where's its downfalls or where do we need to supplement it? Where, you know, to make sure that we're bringing all three pieces in there. Do you have any advice for people if they're going through the math curriculum that they have and they want to make it more rigorous or they want to improve it in any way? Um, yeah, the first thing they need to do is, is do that, like, is spend some time looking at it, mm -hmm. like really, really looking at it, not just going, okay, we're on lesson one, now we're on lesson two, now we're on lesson three, and I'll just teach it as it's outlined in, in the basal. Mm -hmm. Because we know that um, not every, you know, not every math program can hit every, you know, concept and every um, part of the, of what the authors of the core are expecting of us, but a lot can hit, you know, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so as you look at that and as you look at, at the programs that you use, there are things that we can do as teachers that really speak to um, improving that, that rigor or making the lessons so that, that they can be modified to be more rigorous. We really need to look at how, how many of our students are engaged. Are they really being engaged in math, in math talk, you know, that math and discourse? Are they able to talk to each other, to their peers? Um, instead of you know making your um, questions to one student having those students turning and talking to their neighbors and their partners just so that we're listening to how they're explaining their answers how they're explaining what we have just taught them so that um, they're involved it really is um, switching our role a shift in our in the role we play as educators 
to one of a facilitator at times, uh, the bulk of the time as a facilitator, to be able to give and turn over those our classrooms to our students, to um, build that grit or that stay in the struggle or that perseverance in them, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that they don't they don't give up, and so that we don't also give up on them. Okay quick and easy. It's, it's really interesting when we look at the the math instruction in high-performing countries, and I know the United States is often compared to, to lots of others, we compare ourselves to high-performing teachers. Comparison is good if it makes us better, mm-hmm. um, but the thing that, that seems to stand out is that we typically, here in the United States, is we like to set up problems for our kids. <laughs> here, let me set that up for you. Let me help you with figuring that out, and not really trusting that they can do that themselves. And trusting that there is a point, you know, that we can allow them to be frustrated to a level that will motivate them into being able to become good problem solvers. Not to the point that they're, you know, as little little ones, you know, crawling and crying, I mean, and crawling under their desks and that kind of thing. <laughs> but, re- but really creating that balance in our classroom. You know, it, it needs to be balanced. They need to be able to... Um, do hard things right um and making sure that when we ask questions we pause we allow them to think about it that think time is so essential in in increasing the rigor in our classroom um as as are the type of questions that we ask our students Uh, expecting our students to be able to double check their answers and know why they got it correct or didn't get it correct Um, so they look at both their approach to how they solved it and also the result I know that we live in a in a very rapid society, and, and our students come to us wanting to know if they've got the answer right. Mm-hmm. You know, we we talked about that a little bit in the class. We want to know that as as adults. Mm-hmm. Did I get it right? Did I, did I do this right? If we're learning a new skill, come tell me I did it right. We want that validation right away. Um, listen to their answers. See what their thinking is. Um, expect some inquiry. Expect to give your students you know, some really rich mathematical, op- you know, opportunities to solve problems and to interact with the math concept that you're, you know, currently teaching, not just, you know, in a lecture format, give it, you know, dis- we can't be disseminators of information mm-hmm. all the time anymore. Right. We have to involve our students. We have to, um, we have to be able to expect them to be good problem solvers and expect them to be able to solve problems that we give them, not just plug in answers to a story problem. Mm-hmm. Really look at problem solving and what that is. Um, and then of course, you know, differentiate for those needs. Like you said at the very beginning, see where our students are at, differentiate based on their skills and abilities, and then set those high standards for them. Um, expect them to listen to each other and build on their the comments that their, that their peers made. You know, what can they do to add to it? How can they rephrase it? How can they... Um, how can they explain it in a different way? What did they notice about the way that they solved it that was similar or different from their peers? Mm-hmm. All of those kinds of things can really increase that rigor in the classroom. And those are usually pretty easy switches for teachers to make. Yeah. And the more I learn about math education, the more I realize what a gift it is to be able to teach kids to be problem solvers and that they can do hard things. Mm. And I don't know if there's an area of the curriculum that's better for teaching growth mindset than mathematics. I agree. I totally agree. And I totally agree with that that philosophy of the growth mindset. You know, we can't work in that fixed. We, we They need to understand that, you know, that they can apply themselves, that they can do it. Can you share any examples of what rigor looks like in the early elementary education classroom? Yeah, one one that I observed actually um, as as a math coach, I was in a kindergarten classroom and I observed this teacher and what she had done was she was working on the number seven. And so we were looking at, the, the students were all looking at their different partners of seven. How are we going to build those partners of seven? And so they each had been given seven um, counters. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head what kind of counters they were, but they were given seven counters and they were basically their pumpkins. It was around Halloween time. And so these were their pumpkins and they were going to work with their partner and share these pumpkins. And it was really interesting to watch the students be able to go, there's one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. Oh, I have one more. 
What do I do with that? Mm-hmm. And the range of um, how students handled that was really, really interesting to see. And that's where the rigor came in. I, I saw several students try to hide that other one because they didn't know what to do with it. It's not all of a sudden fair anymore. Mm-hmm. And in kindergarten, things need to be fair. And But they also knew that if they gave it to their their partner, then they were going to have hurt feelings because they didn't have the same amount. And if they, but if they kept it for themselves, then the partner was going to have, you know, was going to have hurt feelings. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, you know, one little team, she just broke down and started to cry because she just there was no way she was going to be able to figure out how to do how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so interesting because they were on the number seven. And, and like I said, it was October time, you know, into November, they were pumpkins. And so the students had already worked with the numbers, you know, all the way up to seven by this time. So they were familiar with that concept of, of odd even. It wasn't the first introduction to the fact that there wouldn't be equal shares. Mm-hmm. But it was it was watching them take that, that understanding of what they knew um, and apply it mathematically. Mm-hmm. That we're, we're doing partners. We're not doing, we're not doing equal shares. Um, because we want to be able to then generate and um, be able to write down what these problem, you know, what the, what these partners are. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have one plus six. We're going to have two, um, or they were given seven. So you know, one plus six and two plus five and three plus four. And um, and so as that teacher very patiently allowed those students to figure that out, to work through that, to understand that to then come to a realization that we were making partners, that um, this time we're going to write it as a three plus four. This time we're going to look at it as a, as a four plus three. Um, and so the math understanding that came out of that, you know, of, of the commutative property, to under, you know, so they could understand. Um, and then what, what she had them do after that was that they had to go back into their little math journals and they had to write out their favorite equation they could draw it out or write it out because you know in in kindergarten they're not expected to be able to generate or write those um those equations but they could draw them out they could they could draw out one pumpkin you know and then use the the addition sign and you know put the other partner in um but she just through her guidance of allowing them to explore and to um come up with a solution just by that increase the rigor as opposed to we have seven everybody look here's seven look we can you know everybody take it and break it apart yourself you know so you've got your unifix cubes or whatever break it apart so that you've got one you know you got a certain amount of unifix cubes in one hand and a certain amount in the other now tell me what you got johnny tell me what you got sally you know she allowed them to work together to because she knew that part of that struggle was going to be what were they going to do with that odd number mm-hmm. and how were they going to um, discuss that, share it, math talk about it, all of those kinds of um, really good information that she was able to get from her students just by changing it from a single student um, or full, whole group activity, but single students working with their own um, counters to working in pairs and being able to work through that problem-solving process. And that was a great example to me of increasing yeah. that rigor. Yeah, thank you. That is a good. You're example. welcome. Do you think? Do you think it takes more patience <laughs> to teach? <laughs> I do. Or do you think it's a mind <laughs> shift of being a facilitator then? Or <laughs> I think it's both of those, and I also think it's it's trusting our students. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the other thing is, is that it's really scary to give our classrooms turn over our classrooms that that to our students that way. Um, because we have to know and be able to anticipate, you know, wherever they're going to go with that. And and also the questions that they're going to come up with. And sometimes we don't know as teachers what those questions are going to be. And I know some teachers are very afraid that they won't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want to show ourselves to be the experts in our classrooms. Duh, that's why we go, you know, why we become teachers. But being able to really allow our students to explore and generate their own questions is so powerful in, in you know, developing that conceptual understanding for our students. Yeah. And so, we, you know, we have to allow it. We just do. And we have to make that shift. It's a shift not only academically, but also in our instruction 
Now, the more I learn about the mathematics core curriculum, the more I've seen that it's our end goal, but it doesn't necessarily tell you the path to get there. And there's a lot of underlying mathematical standards that our kids need to learn to get to those end goals, like one-to-one correspondence and... Right, like the cardinality, the conservation of numbers. Mm -hmm. We want our students to be able to really work with numbers well. And really, what it comes down to is is that so the major work that's been identified in kindergarten through second grade is in that addition and subtraction mm-hmm. and so um all of those underlying skills underneath that is that cardinality that that subitizing we talked about once before that being able to recognize numbers um just by regardless of their orientation the whatever the manipulative is or or the you know the dots or the you know how they're organized be able to know that Five is a five is a five. Three is a three is a three. Um, and and conserve that number, knowing that every time we present that to them, they're going to remember that. They don't have to keep counting. Mm-hmm. You know, how many fingers do you have? One, two, three, four, five. Good. How many fingers do you have? Oh, one, two, three, four, five. We need to get them to that point of being able to just know that there is five so, because that leads them to that counting on strategy with that addition. Um. But really, those things, that, that cardinality, that number, um, that subitizing, that one-to-one correspondence, the, you know, the um, conservation of numbers, that really all kind of fits under that umbrella of, of developing their number sense. Mm-hmm. We really want our students to be able to interact with numbers in a way that is very confident and very fluid. Um, we want them to have a really well-organized conceptual framework so that they know how numbers work so that when they see a four they also see a two and a two and a two a three and a one that when they see an eight they also see you know all of those partners as well so that um they are able to break them apart and put them back together uh in a way that they can add and subtract eventually multiply and divide so that numbers aren't just abstract you know, formations with a pen, <laughs> you know, the abstract symbol is not what, what defines the number It's actually, um, them being really able to understand and quantify what that abstract symbol looks like. And so, um, you're right. The, the authors of the core were very specific in not wanting the core to be a checklist, mm-hmm. you know, yep. My kids got subitizing. Yep. They got, um, cardinality. Yep. They got this. Um, part of that is, is our own understanding as educators in that math pedagogies, knowing where, you know, where that needs to go, um, researching that out ourselves and understanding that, um, as I refer people to the progressions documents, and, and I'll give you that, I'll email you that link as well. Those documents have a really, they are excellent for identifying what each of those underlying skills are. It breaks them right down and and explains why each of those are so necessary um, with our students so that they understand that they're not bound by traditional algorithms, that they can use um, other strategies, that they can use things that work for them, that, um, you know, and and I think we've identified those ones that are are essential in in our kindergarten and our first grade Mm -hmm. is them really developing a sense of those numbers and how to work with them understanding that um, however we teach that, that they know that, um, that you know, that, that a three is a three is a three, mm. you know, and that, and that they can really lock onto that and hold onto that and, um, and understand, you know, that, that I'm counting out three items, that three tells me that that's the last number, that that's the amount that I counted, that I also can break that apart to a two and a one. I can break it apart to a three and a zero. And um, that anytime I look at three objects, I know that that's three just by looking at it. I don't have to continually count that. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that is just a, that's a maturity as they progress through school and, and through kindergarten or first grade, that they begin to do that. Um, it also helps us to understand that as we were trying to, uh, Intervene with students who are struggling, you know, as we know that they are struggling is, is being able to identify those underlying um, concepts so that we know where to where to intervene for them. 
Right. We know if they don't have one-to-one -one correspondence. We know if they don't, if they can't subitize, they can't recognize the objects in any in any um, form. And it's interesting that you mention that because because there are standards in the core that say that you know a student will recognize a number of objects, whether it's in a, a straight line, whether it's in a circle, whether it's in a random arrangement. It's just that um, they didn't put that name to it. Right subitizing right but they but they did put that name to it in the progressions documents, the progressions documents. That, that came that you know came along with it just because the court would have been horribly thick and long if, <laughs> if it included every underlying concept and so instead they they chose to address that with the supporting documents yeah. <laughs> and i'm glad we can share the progressions documents because i think as the teacher you feel so much more empowered when you know what that standard means you know, if, yeah. if I can read that standard about the numbers and know that's subitizing and I know how to teach subitizing and I know why it's important. Yeah, I heard a teacher the other day and she's a veteran teacher and I was at a professional development and she brought up subitizing and she said, I mean, she's taught 20 some years and she said, this is the first time I've ever heard of that concept. And so um, it's not a... Uh, it's not a well-known concept, but yet it's been around, you know, forever. You know, it's just that the term of it just hasn't always been around, and and state standards didn't always write that into their into their core. They just wrote things like be able to add and subtract, mm -hmm. but not identify that there's other things that students need to be able to do, or they can't add and subtract. They just it, they they don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, um, but it is it is fascinating and. Um, I'm glad for those supporting documents, like you, like you said. I'm glad for those progressions because they explain a lot, mm -hmm. and they also explain kind of why and why we teach what we do in kindergarten and first grade, like where this is taking, you know, our students. So, so that we don't want to be able, you know, we don't want to hear teachers saying things like, "Well, I don't know math. That's why I teach kindergarten." <laughs> <laughs> but you need to know math. You need to know why you're laying this foundation oh I, I, my math is so much better since i taught kindergarten <laughs> yeah yeah that's i agree because you really 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 need to understand every little piece of it mm-hmm yep yeah yep. i can that's actually kind of add up my groceries in the grocery store now <laughs> <laughs> see you've developed that number sense yourself my number sense gets better every day <laughs> Yeah, because you see numbers differently now. Once you begin to interact with them on such a basic level, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you can make fives and you can make tens now. Yeah, I can use friendly numbers. That's right. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about what fluency looks like in mathematics in the younger grades and what exactly uh, that is? I would love to talk about fluency because uh, because. Um, it's very specific um, in the core, and it's and it again is is really kind of misunderstood. Um, fluency in and of itself is just that ability to to be um, fast and accurate. Mm -hmm. So it calls for speed and accuracy in the core, and according to the Partnership for Assessment um, of those career and college, college readiness standards, kindergarten students have to be able to fluently add and subtract within five. And then in first grade, they are to be fluently adding and subtracting within 10. They're introduced to higher numbers, but the expectation isn't that they will be fluent in it. Now, with that being said, fluency is whatever strategy works for the student at all times. There is no rule that says it has to be within three seconds. I know that that kind of is out there and, and some teachers really abide by that. Um, the other thing that the cord in, in, in the shifts is understanding that we don't want to give our students time tests, that they have to complete this amount in this certain amount of time, because fluency is very unique to each student. Some can, can do it mentally, others will always count on their fingers. It's just that they have a strategy that works for them. And so in kindergarten, do they have a strategy that works for them that they can, from memory, fluently add and subtract within five? And then in, kinder and then in, on, in first grade, can they, and what strategy, 
do they use to add and subtract within 10? It's not that they can complete a certain amount in a certain amount of time. Um, it's not drill and kill our students. It's again, teaching them to find a strategy that will work and will be accurate every time they use it. I'm so glad that you say that because my, my personal story is that uh, when I was in school, I was getting A's in all my math classes, but I thought I was terrible at math and that somebody was going to find out that I was secretly <laughs> terrible at math because I could never pass a timed test. Mm -hmm. I, and they were so humiliating to me and I was convinced I was bad at math. Even though I got good grades and could, could solve all the problems, I thought, I'm bad, I must be bad. Someday somebody's gonna find out. So I, I loved that, that thing about that it's individual and it's not, it's not something we time. Well, because that's so arbitrary. Mm -hmm. it, I, it, it is so arbitrary. That's just something that somebody came up with at some time. And I know our, our, our elementary math um, specialist at the, at the State Office of Education, and that's what he always maintains. He's like, if I could get rid of time tests in all of our schools, <laughs> you know, during my my sojourn here at the state office of education, I would be a happy man because you know, there, there's nothing wrong with students setting goals against themselves to improve. Like we want them to be quick. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want, we, we don't want students in fifth and sixth grade and 10th grade, you know, still having to get out unifix cubes to do, you know, a math yeah. problem, but we, but not, you know, not memorizing a certain list of math facts and being able to reproduce that in a certain amount of time that doesn't preclude students from being able to do geometry. Mm -hmm. Like it isn't, you know, fluency in, in math doesn't look the same and have the same results as fluency in reading. You know, it, it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. It is it, is it best? Sure. It's best for students, but you can do a lot of math without, you know, without being able to complete a, a time test in a certain amount of, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think efficiency was a word that always comes to mind, is that mm -hmm. UNC is about being efficient. And it is. In your own way. In your own way, yep. It is definitely about efficiency. And are there strategies that are more efficient than others? Absolutely. And do we want students to get to that point? Yes. But the reason that the core was written and designed the way that it was is so that it could build on that from year to year. So that students, as they became more fluent, in um, in concepts, then the next year they would add to that. The next year they would add to that. And you know, it would continually build on it. And if we go back to that rigor and we go back to that three-legged stool and we really build that conceptual understanding, we build that procedural fluency and we give kids lots of opportunities to um, practice those, then they will become, you know, they will become more efficient at it because they know they see numbers differently. They interact with them differently. Mm -hmm. And then it just makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about benchmark numbers a little bit? You mentioned it before. And I, think I do. That was, is so, it's such a useful thing for kids to latch on to. Well, it really is. You know, in kindergarten, we have the benchmark numbers of five. In, in first grade, we have benchmark numbers of 10. And, and it's interesting because benchmark numbers don't ever go away. You know, as they work with fractions, there's benchmarks of zero, one half, and one. And benchmark numbers come into play um, in that, I'm just going to close that because it's telling me my battery's getting low. Um, benchmark numbers come into play because it gives our students an ability to reason about numbers to make, you know, to be able to look at, at a number, or look at an answer, look at a solution to a problem, and be able to determine whether or not that seems reasonable based on what they know about some of those benchmark numbers. Um, it also really, really secures their mental math strategies. If they can look at numbers when they're adding and subtracting and be able to make fives or make tens, we know that they're gonna be much more efficient and much more fluent at being able to solve those math problems because they just see that. They just see, oh, look at, I've got a seven and I've got a, and I've got a three. I know that that's a 10. I can just automatically put those two together and then I can figure out kind of what's, what's left over. If I see a 70 and a 30, I know that that's a hundred. I don't have to count on my fingers or I don't have to add those. Um, 
you know, using tally marks or whatever, they just begin to see those. And so it it really is essential that we spend a lot of time building that fluency with those benchmark numbers in kindergarten of five. Can our students recognize just by seeing that equation, just by seeing those circles on the on the board, um, just by seeing those unifix cubes or those two color counters, do they recognize that when they see a two and a three that they know it's a five? Do they recognize when they see four and a one that that's a five? Um, and then can they take that conceptual understanding to um, a, a problem that they see that's written out with the, um, you know, just with an abstract number written? Can they just always be able to recognize those? Because kids can learn those skip counting so quickly when they do fives and tens. Mm -hmm. It helps them when they begin to add and subtract um, and, and do money if they know what those nickels and dimes are mm -hmm. because they're the back right back to their benchmarks of five and ten um you know and again when i mentioned fractions the zero the half the one again if you really think about that those are benchmarks of five and ten five is half of half of ten and so it's so essential that they are able to be fluent with those that they recognize those that they understand them and they're able to then use those in their in their um addition and subtraction strategies. Can you give an example of what a lesson on benchmark numbers might look like in an early grade? Um, five frames and 10 frames. <laughs> I mean, really, really pull out those five frames and those 10 frames and use those constantly, constantly, constantly with the kids. You know, having them understand and be able to just see that five and know that if there's one more that it's six, know that if there's two more that it's seven, know that when they get to their double digits and they're adding those or a double digit and a single digit, how do I make a 10 from 12, you know, or, you know, 15 plus seven, how do I make a 10 first? And then what's left over? So really working with those teen numbers and being able to see that, um, those two color counters, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of things that we can do with kids. Um, you know, where they can generate those numbers on their own, whether they roll a dice and they build it on a, on a you know, five frame and a 10 frame. So that they're um, putting that on and how many more do they need um, to make a five? Mm -hmm. You know, if we've got three on here, how many more do we need to make a five? If we've got seven on here, how many more do we need to make a 10? If we have four on here, how many more do we need to make a 10? If we've got 14, then, then and we're adding another number to it, how many are we going to take from that number to make that, you know, those benchmark numbers then into 20 and then how many more so that the kids are always working with those numbers um, and multiples of 10. Um, I just can't, you know, hundreds charts, hundreds charts are excellent um, visuals for kids to really begin to look at um, that, that row of 10 and the next row is 10 more. The next row is 10 more. The next row is 10 more. So if I have a marker or a counter on three, you know, I can just look down and see that a 13 is 10 more, that a 23 is 10 more than that. Um, you know, if I've got a mark on three and a mark on 43, that I know how many tens more that is, that I know that that's four because we've gone four rows down on my on my hundreds board. So I see those patterns mm -hmm. so that kids are really, really having a lot of exposure to seeing those patterns and how those numbers work. Those would be my two number one, you know, manipulatives that I would have teachers use in their classrooms are their five, ten frames and their hundreds charts and getting students to be able to be familiar with those and um, identify the patterns that are involved with all of that. Could you also talk a little bit about teaching measurement and geometry in the younger grades? Um, both of those, um, real, you know, their their first foundations are going to be are going to be right there in kindergarten and first grade. You know, that measuring that non-standard units of measure, just the importance of, of students really, you know, being exposed to what those non-standard units of measures are, and not expecting them in kindergarten to be able to use standard units of measure. We are just we are just introducing them to that. They're exploring that. They're having fun. They're having fun lining up paper clips along their desk. They're having fun, you know, taking um, pencils and lining them up somewhere. They're, you know, to show that, you know, and comparing that, that that we've got, you know, four um, paper clips and it equal, you know, it's the same as one pencil. You know, um, that bigger things we have to use less of, and so that they you know, are just really being exposed to those non-standard ones before they ever um, can make that leap into why we have standardized units of measure so that it makes sense. 
Um, and the same with that geometry. You know, it's really fun that in kindergarten they're building and, you know, they're composing and decomposing that sh their shapes. You know, they're using those pattern blocks. We're building things with those pattern blocks. We're, we're putting them all together and we're making new shapes. Um, we know what the faces are and we know what the vertices are. We know what the sides are. Um, and it's important that as teachers we use those mathematically correct terms so that they they understand that because knowing what a vertice is and a, a, an edge or a face or a side will follow will carry them through all the way through high school. Um, so we have to really cement that understanding for them, you know, in those those very early grade levels. Um, but yeah, that's really the time to just have so much fun with with the geometry, the two dimensional and three dimensional, you know, <laughs> one dimensional and two dimensional, mm -hmm. you know, so the kids really understand. I, I can't tell you the number of students that get to junior high that don't understand that it's called three dimensions because it has three dimensions, <laughs> three ways to measure, you know, mm -hmm. that's why it's three dimensional. It's not just a cool made up name, it's you know exciting. what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you have any final advice for anybody as they're trying to improve their math teaching? The biggest thing that for me is that, you know, there's a lot of really great resources on the internet, mm -hmm. a lot of really, really good ones. Just be very aware and very cautious of what is research-based. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we know are best practices in our math instruction? Don't lose sight of, the, of what we know is best practices for what we found that was cute and fun you know so and make sure um that the other thing is to make sure that you have a balance in your classroom between inquiry and direct or explicit instruction you have you know you have to have both mm -hmm. programs that are completely inquiry based you know direct instruction has to happen at some point i mean students shouldn't be discovering what a square is you know, they they should know what a square is. They can discover what to do with it. They can discover how it's different from a triangle, those kinds of things. You can give them a square and have them tell you about it, but eventually they have to know what a square is mm -hmm. and that it has guidelines and parameters mm -hmm. and that it's not just a cool shape and it's not orange because that's the one that what it is in the pattern blocks, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and so really make sure that, that you have a good mix of, of direct instruction and inquiry. Allow your students to do some really rigorous tasks. We know that students learn best in an environment that is engaging, where they have some control, where they're given many, many opportunities to discuss and talk with their neighbors, um, that we meet them, like we said right at the very beginning, meet them where they're at, differentiate according to what they need, but making sure that all students are learning their kindergarten core and their first grade core in those grade levels, mm -hmm. that um, that you are, as a teacher, we're spending that time really, really making sure that they, um, their understanding is, is, goes so deep so that at the end of that grade level, there's no question about what they know and don't know. And that they can, they can demonstrate to you in their own way that they have mastered that core content mm -hmm. um but just be you know be ever diligent and ever you know um, aware like i said of of what you're finding on the internet what you know what is really research-based we you know we we can spend a lot of time teaching a lot of stuff that isn't going to get us the same bang for our buck that um you know go back to what the, you know go back and find um a couple of websites that I strongly, strongly encourage teachers to go to is the first one is achievethecore.org. And that one is where they can find all those supplemental um, materials that go along with the core. There's um, little trainings on there, professional development, question answers, videos to watch, lots of things about the core that that is designed from the authors of the core. The other one is the illustrative math. And the illustrative math is um, a warehouse, for lack of a better word, that has rich mathematical tasks in each of the grade levels in each of the core standards. And that is constantly being added to. But those um, tasks on there go through a, quite a rigorous screening. Um, not Teachers can't just upload them to there. Mm -hmm. um, and so those two are two huge, huge resources for teachers to be able to find things um, to help their understanding of the core. And, you know, the other thing is 
is read your core, <laughs> read, read what your state expects you to um, be able to do, really find out, have, have a really good firm knowledge of um, the expectation of what it is that you'll be, you know, that you're teaching to your students. Mm-hmm. Know why you're teaching it and where you're going with it, why they need to know it. And then just have fun. <laughs> <laughs> because it's fun. Because it's fun. <laughs> We're teaching in a great time of a great time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We, we really, really are. <laughs> and I love, I love teaching math because it's so. It can be so fun for those little kids. It can be so fun for them, and it's so yeah. equitable too. Because there's no language or cultural barriers when it comes to mathematics. It's yep. accessible to all of them. So. Yeah, it, it really is accessible. You know, um, we, you know, most of the time it's us as teachers that stand in the way of our students' learning. I mean, it, re- it really is. <laughs> and we'd be shocked sometimes if we can turn it over to them from, you know, more often than we do and, and really get their thinking. So the key is they, get out of the way. <laughs> that's right. Get out of the way and let them learn. Yep. <laughs> Well, thank you, Tamara. You're very welcome. Did it's you, been fun. It this is such a fun, fun project. I'm so excited about it. Thank you so much for doing it. I'm excited about it too. We'd like to thank Tamara again so much for being on our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit us at kindergartenkiosk.com and write to us at kindergartenkiosk at gmail.com. We'd like to thank bensound.com for our music and remind you that you can enter our drawing for a free year of ESGI by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. Bye, Mom. See you, everyone. Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, a network of podcasts for educators. By educators. For more information, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. That's E-D-U podcastnetwork.com. Now can I listen to it? All right. Bye, everyone. You might need that sometime. Bye, everyone. Hey, and don't forget ESGI.
And don't forget, if you're planning assessments for this summer, um, and don't forget if you're wanting to truly assess your students, you know, I want to, I'm trying to lead it into their portfolios. And don't forget, be, uh, so portfolios give you a very authentic assessment for your students. And a comp great companion for that authentic assessment is assessing your students using the great tool ESGI. And if you do ESGI, don't forget the code. I'm starting completely over. Oh, whoa, whoa. Portfolios are a great authentic assessment to see where your students are. And a great companion for this authentic assessment style is to use ESGI, which is a great tool to assess students. If you go to ESGISoftware.com and enter code B7227, it will save you $40. But before you have to pay that $40, you'll be able to, or before you are charged any money, you're able to have a free 60-day trial to see how ESGI will work for you. See you, everyone! Sure. I'm... Oh, I was going to do a Heidi song for math. Well, I, I do. I, I've got it. I'm ready. If you're looking for a great way to bring music and math together in your classroom, I'd like to recommend Heidi's Musical Math DVD or uh, CDs. It's brand new that she's retooled her musical math and it's really fun. The kids love it. So go to HeidiSongs.com. Um, what do I call that? Backslash? Go to HeidiSongs.com backslash question mark AFF equal nine and look for musical math the music and look for the musical math DVD. It is filled with lots of fun uh, math and number sense songs and activities your kids will love. You think? Yeah, I'm, that's my link. I've got to get, I haven't fixed my ESGI link. I'm missing out on all kinds of stuff because I can't figure out how to put that better link on. but it doesn't have my affiliate number on it. It just, so anybody, if they don't put my code in, then I don't get credit for them. They can't track it. The one I sent you? I'll forward you that again if I can find it. <laughs> 